Welcome to Apply Yourself, the Pathrise podcast. Every week, we'll have guests to give us insight on hiring and job seeking in tech. Guests include engineers, managers, designers, recruiters, product managers, and everything in between to hopefully leave you more informed and inspired in your job search. Today, our guest is Jan Fiegel, head of talent at Sidewalk Labs. Sidewalk Labs is an alphabet company, and it defines itself as an urban innovation organization. They work on improving urban life through technology to tackle issues like cost of living, sustainability, efficient transportation, energy usage, and they're currently working on designing a new kind of mixed-use, complete community in Toronto's waterfront in partnership with the agency uh, Waterfront Toronto and the local community. So definitely really, really ambitious and exciting uh, projects to see within technology. So to get started, Jan, I'd love to just learn a little bit more about yourself and like how you got into this position at, at Sidewalk. Yeah, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for the invitation, Rochelle. Um, so my name is Jan, which is always a great entry into confusing names from other countries. I'm German originally. I've lived and worked in all kinds of places over all over Germany, in Switzerland, in the UK. I've now been in the US for four and a half years, been with Sidewalk for two and a half. The personal backstory that I like to tell is the one thing in my life that uh, as a good German wasn't rational. Um, if about 13 years ago in, on a bus in Guatemala, I met the woman who today is my wife. Uh-huh. She's a U.S. citizen originally, and we've done intercontinental relationship for a long time, but ultimately made it to New York, where we've been for the past four and a half years, and we've loved it. Aww. I didn't know that about you. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, can you talk to me a little bit more about the mission of Sidewalk Labs? Yeah, absolutely. So Sidewalk is a bit of an unusual company in that, of course, our mission is very ambitious and audacious. And we were started within Alphabet. Mm -hmm. Alphabet is the holding company for Google, was set up about three years, three and a half years ago. And that backing has given us the opportunity, even as a very young company, to go after a really big mission. Mm -hmm. In, In essence, we think there is a better way to build cities, Mm -hmm. to plan cities, to design cities, to engineer them and to operate them over time. And we think that opportunity really presents itself today because we understand so much more about, on the one hand, how humans behave, right? In some ways, cities are the most complex, interdynamic creation of the human species. And on the other hand, We understand so much more and can do so much more with technology, certainly in the sense of internet and connectivity and smartphones and blockchain and machine learning, but also in some ways that aren't maybe as digitally enabled. So one of the things we are really excited about is what's called tall timber, Mm -hmm. the ability to build 20, 30-story towers completely out of wood. It's beautiful. It's just as stable. It's, of course, environmentally friendly. Mm -hmm. Um, And by the way, also just as fire-safe as the traditional traditional ways of of building buildings are. Mm -hmm. And so long story short, there are a lot of things that have changed over the last 10, 20, 100 years, but cities very much still look like they looked 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. And there's both an opportunity and frankly, a need for all of us to figure out how to do that better and how to bring city building into into this century. Yeah, that's a really, really big problem to be working on. What has drawn you to that mission personally? Are there ways that you feel like you connect to this work? 
Yeah, I mean, I always like to say, you know, as recruiters, we uh, we are somewhat salespeople for the company. And I find that, and I know this is true for you, if we don't mm-hmm. believe in what it is we're selling, we, we're not going to be good at it. Absolutely. And, you know, I think there are people here I work with that you maybe call city obsessed. Mm-hmm. They've always known that cities are their thing. They love it. They've built a career around it. I can't quite claim that, but I've certainly always been very interested in helping our societies, our world, our economies go to the right place. You know, at a point in my life, I thought I wanted to be a diplomat. Mm -hmm. That didn't pan out. And here I am, a recruiter. But what's also been very true for me is I've always lived in cities. You know, I grew up south of Munich. I've lived in Berlin. I've lived in Oxford and London and New York, obviously. And what I love about cities is I'm able to walk around and take the subway of the energy and the flow of all kinds of people on a summer afternoon in Soho or going to the grocery store and buying salad that's been made in a vertical farm. I think all those things are amazing opportunities. And of course, cities are home to more than half of the world's population. Mm -hmm. That trend's only continuing. And so just as you said, there's a set of problems and challenges and questions and opportunities that exist in cities all around the world that if we can make a small impact on those, we can truly have impact that I think is really meaningful to me and to everybody else who's working here and frankly to a lot of other people who do amazing work in other places too. And the people that are living in the cities ultimately as well. Yeah, (laughs) of course. I think it might be hard for people to immediately grasp like what a software engineer or a designer would do in an organization that's focused on innovation in cities. So tell me a little bit more about the kinds of positions that you're hiring for? And also, what are these engineers and designers and data scientists doing on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's a few ways I can answer this. I just want to acknowledge maybe upfront that, to be honest, for us, we are now four years old. Mm -hmm. We've been getting to work on this and we keep learning as we're going along. And that learning is great, but it also means that we change the way we approach things from time to time. Because of course, you want to make sure that once you've recognized, oh, there's a better way of doing this, that you do it that way. And so actually, one of the things we found to be really important for the people that have been most successful, most enjoyed working here is being comfortable with that to a degree level of change and that one day you might be asked to do something that was maybe not on your job description Mm -hmm. and kind of going with that. And that's in some ways a typical startup story. But to talk about what are the types of people we have here, one of the things I love about this company, about the environment, and frankly, the work that we on the talent team get to do here is it really is a tremendous breadth of things we touch. Because in essence, the way we think we can accomplish the mission that we talked about earlier is is by not just blindly using technology, but actually figuring out what are other cleverer, sometimes and often, but not always, technology-enabled ways to build better cities. Mm -hmm. And to be able to do that well, you need people from all kinds of disciplines who understand their own discipline super well, but who are broadly interested enough to be able to connect the different pieces. Like the T-shape, would you say? Yes, yes, exactly. So this notion that you are deep, like the middle of the T, and then you're broad enough and connect to other pieces like the uh, the horizontal top of the T, exactly mm-hmm. that. And, and so to give you a sense for the types of people on our team and their backgrounds, we have people who come from a civil engineering background, building bridges and infrastructure. We have people who come from an architecture or an urban planning background. We have people who come from tech, product managers, designers, software engineers. We have private equity 
equity infrastructure investors who understand the economics and how to finance things. We have, of course, a set of operations people. We have people who've worked in government, either in leadership positions or at the staff level, being a technical expert. We have people who come from more classic corporate backgrounds. We have people who've devoted their careers to working on street design, mobility, or on sustainability issues. I mean, it's amazing, really, what the kind of backgrounds are that we have. Tell me if it's useful. I'm happy to talk a little bit more about how we've structured our, ourselves as a company to reflect that, which is also non-trivial in some ways and obvious in others. Yeah. In particular, like one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you is I know that you are super, super thoughtful about recruiting and designing a meaningful hiring process that is effective, but also mm-hmm. reflects the values of the company. I would love to know more about like what the hiring process looks like yeah. for Sidewalk Labs. Specifically, a lot of the people that would listen to this are like interested in engineering design and data, but I would love to hear more about like what the process looks like. Absolutely. What's been interesting, I'll give you a bit of a general answer and then I'll go into some specifics. What's been interesting for us is that actually, because our team comes from so many different backgrounds, the work we've been doing has reflected that as well, mm-hmm. which means in the last year, we hired in total about 60 people. The only roles we recruited more than once were a product manager and an executive assistant. Oh, wow. That's meant that we've actually had to deal with very low scale and huge variety. Uh And so in terms of the quote unquote process, we are actually only getting to something that is more standardized where we started to see patterns this year. Mm -hmm. Because if you recruit, you know, obviously somebody who's very senior versus somebody more junior in their career, those things start to look Mm -hmm. different. To give you a specific answer, though, there are, of course, a few principles and also ways of doing things that have held pretty constant. And so let me try to talk about a few of those. One, from a fundamental process perspective, we almost always have an initial screening call to start the conversation, right? This is either somebody's applied to us and we jump on the phone to understand their journey and tell them more about role and company, or we've reached out to them, trying to engage them in a conversation. And it ends up being the same thing. You talk about the company, the role, and try to understand what is interesting to them. Then if that goes well, we do a second call also usually 30, sometimes 45 minutes to go deeper. And this is usually with the hiring manager or somebody who really understands the topic at hand. Mm -hmm. That is then followed by usually one round of on-site conversations. We, for the most part, are able to do what we need to do in about four hours worth. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, after that, we usually have We've structured it and we've been thoughtful about it in a way that usually both our candidates and us feel like we have all the information that we need. Though one of the principles that's really important to me is I want to make sure the people that join us feel like they have all the information that they need, just as I'm going to make sure we have all the information we need before making a decision. And so the further down we get in the process, I mean, this is something I would encourage all the listeners to do too. The further you get, the more you should feel free to ask questions if you have them. Mm -hmm. If they're meaningful questions, I as a recruiter want to make sure you have as full and complete and real of a picture of the kind of company that we are. Yeah. Because what I try to do, what we try to do is build a company for the next few years, maybe even, you know, decade or decades. And there's no point in me trying to talk somebody into a job that is not actually what they are looking for. Yeah. So that's certainly been true. And I want to touch quickly on another key principle that's been very true for us is this notion of audition, not interview. What that means is we do a fair amount of work up front in thinking through 
what does it actually require to do this job? What are some of the key things that if we see somebody's able to do that, we have pretty high confidence they will do well in the job and they will enjoy the job. So that's the notion of there is talking about what you think is important and there is actually doing what you know is important in the role. And how that plays out is we really try to emphasize and are very open and direct with our candidates about this that, hey, here are things that you have to be doing on the job in a small way through a case study or role play. Let's simulate that Mm -hmm. because it'll give you as a candidate a real sense for what is the bar What is the type of work I'd have to be doing? And how do these people do that, right? When I present a case study, do they ask mean questions? Do they ask constructive Mm -hmm. questions? How far are they pushing? How do they interact among themselves? And it, of course, gives us a very real sense for how does somebody respond to feedback, change direction, solve a problem, push back, or whatever else it is that, that we think is important. And so that's been a really important principle for us. And you can do that, I think, in a way that, frankly, also levels the playing field because it becomes less about what degree do you have, uh, what pedigree do you have, what have you done before, and more about what can you actually, in an audition scenario, show us that you're capable of doing. Yeah, I noticed that you all use, I don't know if it's across all roles, but uh, that you like often use performance profiles. Explain a little bit what that would look like for people that are applying to jobs, like a company that would use a performance profile would say, you know, this is what the first month would look like in this job. And this is what the next three months would look like. These are the sorts of things that you're supposed to produce in this job and what success would look like in the role. And I'd love to like hear you uh, talk more about that. But from my perspective, I can tell candidates, companies that put that level of thought into the job process, it takes a lot to like not just do run of the mill type of job description, but really, really understand the role and what success looks like for the role. Do you find that the interview process ends up panning differently or that you end up getting better informed candidates though? Like I I would love to know how you think having that at the beginning of the process maybe shapes the candidate experience. Yeah, I, I, I love, of course, that you notice that. I'm totally not surprised. I think performance profiles are something that great recruiters like you recognize. And I think it's one of the most undervalued concepts in the kind of work that we do. I learned about them. I did not obviously come up with this myself. I learned about them from a guy called Mm -hmm. Lou Adler, who's a bit of, at this point, old school, but I think a real authority, somebody who was really trying to get to the heart of the matter on what are we trying to do. And I'm a huge fan of them. I have a real pet peeve with this notion of describing jobs as these vague responsibilities because it's really meaningless. And so to answer your question, I find, and I haven't actually run the numbers on this or I don't have good statistics on this, but qualitatively in my experience over the past few years, writing a performance profile at literally every step of the process creates higher clarity for everybody involved and I'm convinced drives better outcomes. So let me talk through those key steps. At the end of the day, we care not about was somebody responsible for something, but did they produce what they needed to produce? And that can be very different things. And I try and most of the time succeed in convincing our hiring managers and forcing them to think about what is it actually that you care about this person producing. The beautiful thing about that is if you can spell it out, it gives you more clarity on what you care about. It allows you then to immediately translate that into what are the things we want to test in the interview process and how might we test for them, right? Back to our earlier point about case studies or role plays. And I get all the time unsolicited feedback from candidates who say, yeah, I read your job description. It was so helpful. 
because yes, to me as an insider to the organization, this responsibility might make sense. But to an outsider, what does that mean, right? What does it mean to be responsible for this or that? If I don't understand the org chart, it becomes really tricky. And so even our candidates say, this was super helpful. You know, I think I know where the bar is in terms of what you expect. And of course, when you found the right person, when you have an offer out, when the, an offer is accepted and the person ultimately starts, there is a level of clarity that this person has about what the expectations are that makes your onboarding so much easier. Literally this week, a senior hire we made late last year emailed me, and I love him and he's fantastic and I'm so glad we have him and we were able to win him. And he emailed me and, and a few other people, a CEO, etc., to say, hey, I went back to my job description. I realized my first quarter is over, my first three months, and I highlighted you know, green, yellow, and red what I accomplished and what I didn't. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And that's such a nice reminder that like it gives everyone clarity it makes conversation so much easier and obvious i'm gonna stop here but i'm a massive fan and i think (laughs) everybody can only benefit from it yeah yeah you said one thing about people should ask questions in the process and i think on the other side at pathways when we're like helping coach candidates i think they feel very hesitant often uh, because they're in this like vulnerable position and they tend to like ask questions maybe about work-life balance or questions about policies at the company or like things that they feel maybe be like a little bit more uncomfortable about, like after they get an offer. Do you think there's ways that people can ask about like things that are important to them or like aspects of the job earlier than that? Or are there things like recruiters can do or ways that candidates can be more upfront about like the things that are important to them? Or like, what would you tell candidates? Like, I don't feel comfortable like talking to my recruiter about this yet or talking to my manager about this yet. It's a great question and super important. So maybe a few thoughts on this. Fundamentally, kind of, as I said before, I think this is a two-sided conversation. Mm -hmm. And both sides should get all the information that they need to make that decision. There is such a thing as too few questions, Mm -hmm. too many questions. But at the end of the day, if somebody's asking thoughtful and intelligent questions, I always respect that. Mm -hmm. Right? There comes a point where you're like, okay, this is your, you know, 40-second question. Either we really failed at communicating or you didn't listen or you are really skeptical about this. And so I'll try to redirect the conversation Mm -hmm. towards that. But I have never seen that be an issue. And so I think fundamentally, I would absolutely encourage, think about what is a meaningful question to you, what matters to you, and find ways to bring them up. Mm -hmm. I think the second thought, and this is what you're hinting at a little bit, different companies, different processes run in different ways, right? I've been in processes where actually the recruiter didn't give me the opportunity to ask those questions, Mm -hmm. or maybe the interview day was so packed. This happens to us sometimes too, because we have those four hours and they are scheduled down to the minute. And it can happen that you don't end up having the time to ask those questions. I think then maybe on a closing note, How I would recommend handling that is, you know, the first step is you need to know what are the questions that you want to ask that you care about. Mm -hmm. And you should probably have a sense for what's more and what's a less important question for you so you can prioritize. Secondly, be upfront about the fact that you have a few questions that you have top of mind or that you have prepared because it's going to be much more likely that people will create the space Mm -hmm. for you. Third, if that space, that opportunity isn't given, that tells you something about the company and the team too. But don't be shy to ask to be given the opportunity to ask more questions. And I think that's maybe how I would think about that, if that is useful. 
that's definitely useful. Do you think that there's something that maybe like more junior candidates or like that have recently graduate, um, maybe like common pitfalls or, or things that you wish they knew or things that you would say to like maybe put them at ease? You can take you can take either approach. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was reflecting on my own experience when I was fresh out of school. I'd always worked next to school, but not in the types of jobs I would want to be working full time. Mm-hmm. And it was actually kind of hard to wrap my head around what does all of that mean? And the mystery doesn't necessarily make it easier to relax or be confident or know what questions to ask. And so I think that in some way is is a challenge. And so maybe one insight is the sooner you can get yourself familiarized with the kind of environments and cultures that you are interested in and potentially working in, I think the more comfortable it'll make you. Mm -hmm. The reality, I think for most of us, I don't know how you feel about this, but you know, at the end of the day, most companies are places where people with more and with less qualifications, more and less motivations and different objectives show up and try to do their best every day. But there's no particular magic to it. It might just seem magic when you're not in it. And so in terms of advice, I would say relax as much as you can do that. Be clear about what is it that you care about. If you care about something in a real way, in some ways, you should have a lot of questions of stuff that you're just curious about, right? You might just want to know about this. And I think the other thing I would say is focus on doing well, not on looking good. Because I think the nuance here is play to your strengths, Play to your strengths and be focused on doing that. Mm -hmm. You can't control what it is that you do, what you ask, how you behave. You can't control how other people perceive you. And I think the thing I didn't understand when I was fresh out of school was to take comfort in the fact that if I play to my own strengths and I'm honest about it, almost by a natural selection process, I'm going to end up in the right place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, might be more work, but you probably will be happier overall. That's how I view it anyway. I would love to know, you talked about like being an alphabet company. So there's a relationship with Google. And there's also lots of very, very different companies that are within that umbrella. Mm-hmm. How, in terms of like resources, like what's shared like with Google in terms of hiring process, would you say like if you interviewed at Google, it's not going to be anything like your, your interview at Sidewalk. Tell me a little bit more about like what might be standardized or the same and what is like completely different. Simply put, We operate as an independent company. Mm -hmm. That is different for different companies within the Alphabet umbrella. Hmm. Sidewalk was started as an independent entity inside of the Alphabet umbrella, which is different from, say, Waymo, Mm -hmm. which was a project inside X that eventually spun out. So they, even from a legacy perspective, have much closer tie-ins with the systems, the software, the ways of doing things that Google has, and also often have a lot more people who are trained at a lot of the great practices that they have at Google. We were set up as an independent entity, so practically we write our own policies, our own recruiting process, etc. That said, we are part of the same legal entity or what's called a wholly owned subsidiary, and so certain rules apply that maybe have become much more important than a company the size of Alphabet and or Google mm-hmm. that you probably wouldn't think about as a smaller startup. But as an employee, you rarely see those. I see those because I'm on the operations side of things. One way in which you see them, which is really nice, is that we 
have Google equivalent benefits. Mm -hmm. And that is, of course, something nobody's complaining about. Yeah. Like in terms of when you give somebody an offer package, if equity is included or stock is included, would it be like alphabet stock or is it like something sidewalk specific? It is going to be sidewalk specific because, of course, the idea of stock is part is considered part of a long term incentive. Yeah. And the long term incentive for the work we do should be tied to the work that we do. The stock in Alphabet is driven today primarily by the business that Google does, and that creates a weird incentive alignment. So if you're at Sidewalk, you're at Sidewalk first. Yeah, yeah. I know you have like Craig Neville Manning, who is a BFD at Google for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you feel like you get a lot of talent like from that umbrella? You know, I think it's evolved a little bit over time. In the early days, a lot of the early talent had connections with Google for a bunch of different reasons. If you think about the roles and the breadth that we've talked about earlier, naturally, not all of those exist within Google. And also for other reasons, right? Trying to build a business that is very different from Google's. It's a fundamentally different business model. You want people from from all kinds of different backgrounds. And Uh of course, you want ultimately the best candidates to, to be joining you. So Google has become ever less of a key pipeline for us. I don't actually know the numbers, but I don't think it's as big as one might suspect. Certainly, naturally, there are some ties that we have, and so it'll certainly continue to happen, but it's not a major source. And can you tell me a little bit more about like when you have hired new grads or like if you're hiring uh, new grads or interns, what that looks like? I mean, it seems like there are a lot of like very specific, specific roles as opposed to like volume, like we got to hire 50 just generalist engineers. It seems like people are hired for specific tasks. 100%. So you're right. Historically, up to date, we've hired very few, if almost none, uh, fresh out of school folks directly into the company. Uh And that really has a lot to do with, on the one hand, what you already called out, the the breadth uh, of different backgrounds. But secondly, the core of what we have to be good at as an organization is being an innovator and an integrator of specific solutions. Because we touch a lot of different disciplines, we can't be the best at all of those different disciplines. Our job and our success depends on the ability to integrate those. And to integrate all these different disciplines, you have to be a good client almost all of the time, right? One of the truisms is any consultant is only as good as the client. So we need people who can help us be a really good client in a lot of different disciplines. And that's meant that generally we've hired relatively experienced folks. Now, going forward over the next few years, I expect that as we have the outlines ever more crystallized and clear, we are are already today starting to hire more early career talent that still uh-huh. hasn't really meant fresh out of school for us. Uh-huh. But I think we will move ever closer there. We've also become slowly better at the intern process. We love having interns. I think the challenge that I've seen with many startups is you want to start to recruit for great interns in November and you have no idea what you're going to be doing in June. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. Nobody has time to really think about it. So that's been a bit of a challenge for us too. And, and so it's actually been great when students have, for different reasons, been a little bit more flexible and comfortable with making a decision late in the process or closer to the end of Q1, early Q2, which is something I've seen slowly shift over time as well. Yeah. So do you start hiring interns in November or is it 
like a bit later so it can be aligned? So it, it, it's varied a little bit between the different departments because for some departments, it's a little bit more predictable than for others. This year, we've started our internal process in November. We actually shared a few intern postings early in January and some of the departments are still putting them out now or have been putting them out. And it's been a little bit more chaotic than I would have wanted it to be. So I think we'll make it better this year around. That's great. Well, how long have you all had interns? Like how many summers? It's probably been, so I joined in September 2016 and we definitely had interns that summer, Uh which would have been the second year for the company. So it's been printed since pretty early on. Yeah, that's awesome. So another thing I want to make sure I definitely cover is about like talent networks or like when someone hears we're going to keep your resume on file or like, we want to keep in touch. We want to engage with you. And I, I'd say probably I like 98% probably read that as like, yeah, I'm never going to hear from them again. I would love to hear um, like from your perspective, what talent networks mean or like explain that for people like that don't really know and what you think the future looks like for that. And when you do engage with people, what does that look like? How are there ways that if there isn't a job right now, like they can truly be engaged and ready for the future? Yeah, to maybe start with the concept itself. The idea is recruiting can quickly become very transactional because you have to fill a particular role right now. And that's got to be my main priority. We all know, though, that that's not necessarily how the world works, Mm -hmm. right? When most people start to look carefully at first, when you're not in school, when it's not driven by a school deadline, it can take actually multiple months for you to look at different opportunities and, and play with that. And so more and more companies have been trying to reflect that in the way that they manage talent. Famously, Zappos has gone to the extreme end of that and for a time taken away specific job applications. And so the idea is, how can you create an opportunity for people to reach out and say, I'm interested in your company. I don't see the right role right now, but you know, if the right thing comes up, I'd love to work with you. And or on the other side for the company to say, oh, there was this person or who were the people that were interested in working with us generally in this area now that we have a job in this area. We actually do this too. We've had a, quote, talent network job live for, I think, a good year now. Yeah. Do people apply to that? Absolutely. What what happens after they apply? We're lucky in that for people in this world of thinking and working on cities, we, I think, are quite an interesting place. And so many people are interested. Mm -hmm. But we also have the challenge of we're 110 people as an organization, if you count everyone, right? So there just aren't that many jobs. Mm -hmm. And most of them, as we talked about earlier, are quite specific. And so what we do is, unless it's crunch time and we literally don't get to it, we review those applications. Uh, We also ask people to self-identify in terms of their functions so that it becomes more searchable for us. Mm -hmm. And we also go through those applications and try to decide, oh, is this somebody who could be interesting for this Mm -hmm. job that I know is coming is not live yet? And review. And sometimes if there's somebody really stellar, we will reach out and have what we call an opportunistic conversation to say, we're trying to be very clear. Hey, there's no job here right now, but I know you're interested in us. If you're interested in having a conversation so we can get to know one another better, super happy to do that. And we probably, I think, run maybe about 10 of those a month. So it's pretty few for the amount of applications we get. And then the thing that we can do is when a job comes live, we can go in and either say, who are people that we've actually spoken to or who are all the people that said they were interested in this particular area or who are all the people who uh, said they are interested in this particular area that applied in the last year and that have worked at one of the following companies or you know however you want to cut it and then you know there's different ways of engaging with them what we've done 
done is we've said, hey, you had reached out to us in the past. We now have a job live that we thought could be interesting for you. If it's in fact interesting, we'd love to hear from you. Here's where you can apply or let me know via email. So we're still playing with that. And to your point, it is probably still not as good of a system because you need to actively manage it. And even actively managing something takes time for something that I, as, a, as somebody who needs to manage my week, don't know if it has the right person. But it's certainly been, I think, very useful for us and certainly for a large number of folks who have been interested in starting conversations with us. And we do go back and we do hire people a year later. It's been pretty amazing. Yeah. So if someone is is a computer science student and they are interested in civic tech and interested in this space in general, what advice would you have for them in terms of gaining experience in this way? I would love to hear from you in terms of maybe like some other companies that they should look at, um, some things that they should be doing, the kinds of projects they should be engaging with. Two main thoughts come to mind for me. On the one hand, I think this is actually a great time if you have a technology skill set and you want to work on civic, societal, public goods problems. Because in a way, I think we live in, a, in an age of technology now where many of the big technical problems have been tackled and platforms have been built. That doesn't mean that new things won't come up or are not coming up all the time. But there's this interesting graph that somebody made about you know the earliest Craigslist page and slowly how all the different categories on Craigslist have been ticked off by starting companies in that particular hmm. area. And so a lot of that has increasingly been solved. And, and what we're seeing is technology companies or technology was now being applied to more difficult problems like food delivery, which has a very physical operational component to it, or to governments and to cities. And of course, governments is something that you know intricately well. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> and I think from that perspective, it's really amazing. I, uh, I will give a specific call out here in New York. There is a venture fund that's been set up called Urban.us. Mm -hmm. They run an incubator program together with BMW. And their focus is urban tech, mm -hmm. right? Saying there's a full range of problems that exist in cities that are worth solving. Could be all kinds of things from traffic flow to vertical farming to pure software plays. And we're going to go after that. And we're going to support founders, founding teams that, that want to solve problems in that world. So actually, once you start looking, I think it's very much the moment in time to join civic tech broadly. And I would recommend go to Crunchbase, do your research. You'll find plenty when you go out there. The second thought is also, I think, from a functional perspective, it's never been easier to start your own project than it has been today. Mm -hmm, the technological mm -hmm. tools are so cheap. Yeah. The platforms all exist. We now live in this world of really, in, in many ways, the APIs, right? I can yeah. rent cloud space from any of the big providers. I can, for $10 a month, subscribe to an Adobe Design Toolkit. I can tap GitHub for the various plugins that I might be interested in, etc. There's a lot of tools out there. And I think in many ways, it's never been easier. And it, there's also no better way to prove that you are, in fact, interested and competent in solving a problem of a certain type mm -hmm. than actually just going out and doing it, even if that's on a project, on a side project basis. Yeah, I think what I love about civic tech is being able to apply computer science design. A lot of it is about like the data that you have access to. And because of the incentive structure around like government and cities and civic tech, there are so many data sets out there. I mean, and 
some of them aren't like super well structured and and all of that but like you can find tons of information on medicare that that's public you yeah. can find tons of information on trails and parks and bike information and parking and all of that and playing with that can really like lead to something interesting but at the very least if you are interested in that space i think it's an amazing way to demonstrate that interest through playing with with those data sets and, and creating something with them. I totally agree. And, and you're, of course, totally right to call out the data sets that are available in particular. There's some amazing stuff. Yeah. So the next part of this is really like they're more short questions. Uh, like we want to get to know you a little bit better. We call it our fire round. So, yeah, I know you live and breathe cities in your current job. But what is your favorite city to visit? Rome. Hands down. Okay. If someone is looking to get started with recruiting or talent or really wants to like dive in to like know more about like what good recruiting uh, looks like, where would you tell them to go first? Find the training grounds. There are probably three, three training grounds. The recruiting agencies, there are academy companies like Google, Facebook, et cetera. You can go down the list or find a strong manager who will teach you. Mm-hmm. What other companies do you feel have been particularly thoughtful from your perspective about their hiring process, aside from Sidewalk? The beautiful thing is more and more companies are being thoughtful. Yeah. The one I will call out is Cockroach Labs here in New York. Uh-huh. It's a group of ex-Google engineers, actually, I think that started. It's, it's a database company. And Lindsay, who's been running people ops and recruiting talent there, has done an amazing job. They've written about it on their blog. Go check it out. Yeah, yeah. I worked with Lindsay at Google, like briefly. Well, yeah, of course, you know each other. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know her super well, but um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Mad props to Lindsay. Do you have any like favorite TV shows or documentaries or, or things that you've been imbibing lately? Sopranos. Really? It's amazing. <laughs> That's great. That's great. <laughs> Would you like to call out any other startups in in this space more broadly that you think are doing a good job making cities better? I'll call out one that is both an awesome company and has a product that everybody who lives in a city and needs to get around should just download, City Mapper. One of the issues we see in all cities is how do I get around? How do I ideally do that without relying on a car? City Mapper does an awesome job of telling you the options. Yeah, nice. I'll have to check them out. I haven't heard of them. And what's your favorite part about living in New York? I mean, you've been there for a while now. I think you're <laughs> you're, you're definitely local. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess depends on who you ask. A four yeah, and a half yeah, years yeah, qualified yeah, 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 yeah. being local. Um, <laughs> I'd say that my favorite thing is the thing that surprised me. The stereotype of New Yorkers is that they're kind of gruff. Mm -hmm. And I've actually found the opposite to be true. It's a little bit like everybody realizes that we all live in a compact space and that to make that work for everyone, you have to follow certain rules and be kind to people. And as long as I follow those rules, people have been super nice to me. It is, however... When you are the tourist with the map standing in the bike lane, you will get yelled at and maybe run over because you're not following the rules. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I would love to just highlight a little bit, like, because Jan wasn't able to, to talk about this. You have a pretty awesome office location for, for Sidewalk <laughs> Lab at, at Hudson Yards. And I know the vessel just, just opened. Um, mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit more about what it's like living in a place that's definitely considered like innovation in terms of urban planning. Yeah, it's certainly true. So glad you're asking. So our office is in Hudson Yards, specifically on 10th Avenue and 30th 
Fiftieth Street in New York on the West Side, and it's been coming alive really in the past few weeks. We've been in this office for two and a half years, but it's、mm-hmm. really been in the past few weeks that a lot of those things, as you said, have opened. And I was just at an event last night at a building called the Shed.、Mm-hmm. We can see it from our office. Our CEO Dan Doctor was a major driver behind getting that done. It's a new cultural institution. Can be used for all kinds of mixed and creative arts and known artists and unknown artists. It's amazing and. He talks about Hudson Yards as being Manhattan's last frontier. It's a big area that used to be only industrial uses and had really fallen by the wayside. And through a number of different steps, it was taken on as a new development. And they've really made an effort to, while building glass towers, not turning it into just a set of glass towers, but、mm-hmm. thinking about ways in which we can pull people in, create mixed-use environment, and bring the place alive.、Mm-hmm. And I'm really excited about being here. The vessel, in particular, I'll tell you honestly. When I first saw the drawings, I thought it was ridiculous.、Mm-hmm. Seeing it come together, it's amazing. I think、mm-hmm. it's beautiful. It's fascinating. It's a mile of vertical walkway. If you're listening to this, you don't know what it is. Just Google it. It's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I have not checked it out like on on because we're on the West Coast. But this is going to be like <laughs> the first thing I do when I go back to New York City. When you come to visit Sidewalk. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so, is there anything else that you'd like to say more about, like Sidewalk Labs or what you're doing or what's exciting for you all these days? You know, maybe the bridge between what we are working on and what many of your listeners are doing is really thinking about the moment in history that we live in. Sometimes it can seem quite scary, and without doubt, there are big things going on that can be scary too. Not least among them, climate change. There's a lot of political upheaval now, but at the same time, there are some really phenomenal opportunities. And more and more, technology is really a Big and powerful tool. Technology, for its own sake, is rarely the answer. But what we think about, what I think a lot of our listeners are thinking about, is how can we use technology as a powerful tool to create better solutions, better outcomes. And I think in that way, it's an amazing time to be alive. I always ask people more about their tech stack, and somehow I miss talking <laughs> a- about that. Oh,、uh, like really briefly, do you think you could talk about the tech stack and the tools that you all are using? Yeah, of course. There is not one answer. So, so maybe important to understand about how our tech teams work is we are interested in driving quality of life in cities. There's a number of different ways in which you can break that、mm-hmm. out. And so, some of the things we're working on are urban mobility. How do you move around in cities? Sustainability. How could you create a climate positive neighborhood? Building innovation.、Mm-hmm. How could we build buildings completely out of wood? And so there's a variety of actually different responses and answers and things you can do. Some of our team have created AR solutions so that you can see what a building in this particular space would look like. And so I think different than many other startups, we don't have one stack that everybody works on. We have five、mm-hmm. or six different teams at different points in time that are working on sometimes smaller, sometimes bigger projects, and they are really independent in the way that they can. Decide what technology base, what stack they want to work with. Hmm. Wow. I I think that about the structure is probably pretty unique, but I'm sure the engineers probably appreciate that sort of autonomy to like use whatever tools are best、yeah. to get the job done. I think so too. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well. Well. Thank you so much. Those are all of my questions. I really, really enjoyed speaking with you, and I think students will really appreciate this as well. So th- thanks so much, Rochelle. It was amazing. 
Thank you, everyone, for listening. I just wanted to take a moment to briefly talk about our fellowship program at PathRise. If you're a student or a new grad interested in working in software engineering, product design, or data science, our Career Accelerator program provides personalized one-on-one technical interview prep and career mentorship with advisors like myself to help you get through all of your interviews and land the absolute best job possible. If you're interested in learning more and potentially joining our next cohort, check out pathrise.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time.